Shalom, this is Shomer Man. Welcome to the Parsha Get You Some for Parsha Shof Team, part of the Midnight Torah Study Series for the week. Let's get started with the bracha and dig into the Torah. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Bakar Banu Mikol Hamim VeNatan Lanu Et Torato Baruch Atah Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen Amen Adonai may you bind us to the Lapid Mashiach Yeshua and may you grant us eyes to see Amen So Parsha Shoftim want to start off with a insight or start off with an insight that was shared by again a Kav, one of our local Avengers and he um, wants to share with us from the Midrash get you some this time last time was Bahaturim now they're dropping some Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer by way of the Zohar Okay, so this is on page 208, and I'm going to start within the context of what it's sharing. So um, this is all about the mitzvah of not setting up a matzeva. So this appears in the Tanakh and uh, Devarim 16.22. So let me read that verse for you real quick. Devarim 16.22 You shall not set up for yourself a sacred pillar, which Hashem, your God, hates. Alright, so the sacred pillar is called a matzeva, which is the Hebrew word mem uh, sadi vet hey. Now it's interesting because this is really close to the word for mitzvah, which is a mem zadi vav hey, and if you look at the difference between the vav and the vet, they both have a homiletic sound, and so basically, if you interchange out the man for the house, then you would end up substituting mitzvah and making it a matzeva. Now, the significance of that is the fact that you know you look at the difference between the the six and the two, and the difference between the two is the dalit, which is four. So depending on which way you're using the door, you know, is the difference between a monument for worship or if you're actually following Hashem's mitzvot. So um, I'm just kind of thinking about that because when you hear words that sound similar, it's Definitely something that provokes the thought to see, you know, is there any parallel here? Is there any uh, deeper insight or illusion? And so there is that that I just wanted to throw out there. But anyway, um, so in the Midrash get you some, it says a Matzeva is a single block of stone usually erected to commemorate some event on which wine or oil is poured. Now, if you're thinking about what Yaakov did at uh, Mount Moriah in uh, Parsha Vayetze, 
then uh, you are definitely on the right track. Because when he was sent out from his parents' home, uh, from the home of Yitzhak, because uh, Esau was ready to kill him for stealing his blessing, uh, being dressed and covered in the garments uh, that Esau took from Nimrod after he killed Nimrod. So it's just kind of like, okay, take my garments. Same thing to happen to Nimrod. Same thing will happen to you. And and uh, thanks to Rivka, she intervened and she said, you know what? I think it's best that you go and find yourself a wife and leave here for a while. And it's just kind of like, okay. So as he is heading towards um, the house of Levon, which is where he meets uh, Rachel and Leah and obviously Bilha and Zilpah. Uh, he stops uh, not only at the academy of Shem and Ever, which is the first yeshiva that was established. Um, and notice this, this was happening prior to the giving of the Torah. So if this is the case, Torah is being studied before it was given. So what's up with that? But uh, I continually digress, but I just wanted to make the uh, point that, you know, once he left there, he headed towards uh, the house of Levon and he ended up making a, another pit stop at Mount Moriah. So uh, definitely good distractions, but you can see for sure like he was on a mission and he got sidetracked on Torah. So it's just kind of like. Did he get sidetracked? You know, because according to these pit stops that he made, because by the way, he went to Mount Moriah, he went to the yeshiva, and then he also returned to Mount Moriah, and then he finally made it, you know. So between the, the two trips to the mountain, which is, by the way, where the Akedah was offered, then you see that uh, he was actually being empowered for what he was about to enter into because being in the house of Levon, that was worse than Egypt. Uh, there's this whole uh, midrash about the house of Levon and how he wanted to keep Yaakov there. And he was just like, here, have have wives, have children. You know, you're blessing my house and I don't want you to leave. And thank you for your service. And I'm going to keep treating you uh, unjustly, but don't worry about that. You know, it's all good. We got a good thing going here. And Yaakov would try to leave. He would work his service and, you know, do what he needed to do. But Levon did not want to let him leave. <laughs> and so it's just like he's trying to, you know, uh, keep him in bondage, so to speak. So if you kind of look at that with Mitzrayim, you know, again, we talked previously about the dogs that would wet their tongues uh, at anyone who would try to leave. Egypt, you know, they're like, hey, where are you going? Uh, you don't want to leave here. Everything's wonderful. You know, you're comfortable. You're familiar with everything. You don't have to worry about going out of here because, you know, if you go out of here, then, you know, life is uncertain. You know, things will be a little rough for you. And, you know, just stay. This will be good. You know, and it's just like this is, by the way, what keeps us in our current exile is that we are comfortable and um, I'm vocalizing it and making it known that I am not comfortable in this exile and I was talking to some of the other Havarim today about that and I was just like you know 
I think uh, it might be a good idea for all of us as God's people to really just start making it vocally known in our prayers and in our conversations that the current exile we're in, not cool. And, um, you know, we are making teshuva. We are bonding ourselves to Mashiach Yeshua, like at least every time we tie to feeling, among many other things. But I throw that in there because I love the exhortation that Rabbi Griffin brings down about when we're rapping to feeling to uh, ask Hashem to bond us to Mashiach Yeshua, you know, and I thought that was absolutely incredible because, you know, we're rapping the tefillin seven times around our weaker arm, you know, and uh, this is symbolizing that when you take the word of Hashem and you make seven circuits like a bride around her groom, you know, um, especially on your weaker arm, you're showing that in your weakness, he is strong. You know, that whole message is coming through and you're like, you're circling Mashiach as well, you know, because he he made himself weak for us. And um, I love the beautiful elucidation that Hasis brought down during the Haftarah, Drash, about the way that Hashem wrote himself down, gave over his essence to us, like writing a uh, writing a poem, you know, it was like poetry. Hashem was just pouring out his heart, which is the anoki of I wrote myself down, you know, like that's a acronym for I gave over my essence, which is the Torah. And so in the Haftarah for this week, uh, in Yeshayahu 51 through 52, we see the anoki anoki. And it was basically talking about that whole idea. And with the Midrash on that, it was saying Hashem in a sense, made himself weak for us, you know, as he was doing that. So you think about all of that. And um, the way I got here was because we were talking about Yaakov. He set up a matzeva. And here we have a mitzvah of not setting up a matzeva. So what is the deal? Well, the thing is, a matzeva is a monument for worship. So let me just go ahead and read this page. Because it's better to source everything as opposed to try to explain it with my own words. So here we go. The Torah tells us that our forefather Yaakov established a matzeva in God's honor. Well, how about that? And then it says a matzeva is a single block of stone usually erected to commemorate some event on which wine or oil is poured. On his way to Levon, Yaakov lodged overnight on Har Hamoria, Mount Moria, where God granted him a prophetic dream. On awakening, he found that the 12 stones originally placed around his head had miraculously merged into one. So really, Yaakov did not set up a matzeva, because if you recall the account of this story, Yaakov is going to sleep on this mountain and he sets around his head stones and he's not using them for worship or anointing them or anything but they're like a form of protection so to speak from wild animals and so he's got these 12 stones surrounding him and he lays his head in between them and then he has this account here where the dream happens and he awakens to the 12 stones merging into one so it's just like he wakes up 
and he's like, there were 12 stones here, now they're on one. What's up with this? So it says, Yaakov decided to consecrate the stone as a matzeva, monument for Hashem. He anointed it with oil, which was provided for him from Hashemayim. He bowed, prayed in front of the matzeva, and vowed, if you, Adonai, will allow me to return home in Shalom. I will offer sacrifices in this place. This is uh, a good time to note that this place refers to Mount Moriah, which is where the Beit HaMikdash was built. Well, okay, here we go. So it's right here. I'm just going to read Slika. God then took this monument and plunged it deep into the center of the earth. With it, he supported the world on this stone. The Aharon later rested in the Beit HaMikdash. That escalated quickly. So this reminds me of the fact that, you know, Hashem says don't make an image, you know, uh, of anything likeness in the heavens above or in the waters or anything on the earth. And um, yet in Bamibar, I believe it is chapter 12. Let me double check real quick because... Um, Captain Yisrael always quotes this. Yeah, here we go. Um, Bami Bar chapter 12, verse 8. With him, I speak mouth to mouth directly, clearly and openly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form, literally uses the word image, or the manifestation, even better, from Ankalos. And it says, um, he beholds the form of Hashem. So how's that for Hashem is incorporeal? Um, because right here, he apparently seems to be corporeal. And it says, um, so if you kind of look at that, don't make an image, but here's my image. And then don't make a Madzeba, but here's my Madzeba. You know, and it's the fact that it's not something that is man-made. It's not something that is done with our own uh, desires and our own motives, Um and our own abilities and exertion of effort. You can see here with these two parallels of Yaakov's Matzeva and Hashem's image going on here that, you know, what we're looking at in both scenarios is a facet of Mashiach. We see Mashiach being the image of the invisible in Bamibar 12.8, which, yes, I know, that's in Colossians chapter 1. I get it. But where do you think he got that from? And then over here with the Matzeva, we're looking at the foundation stone. Notice the foundation stone is 12 stones in one. So really, when you look at Mashiach Yeshua and his Talmudim, his Talmudim are likened to his sons. And the 12 sons of Yeshua literally equal Yeshua. Why do I say that? Because remember, Mashiach Yeshua is called Echad because Kehotumash brought down during Parsha, uh, I think it was Ekev or Ve'etkanan. Uh, I feel like it was Ve'etkanan. So it said that Echad is Hashem and uh, basically in the Shema, Devarim 6.4. And it was saying that the word Echad literally means like one body of many members. So you look at that, and then you look at this stone, and then you know Mashiach is literally called an Evan. You know, he's called the uh, chief cornerstone. 
and then um, everything is built up on this cornerstone. It holds everything together. And then you see from this crazy, ridiculous midrash that this stone that was a 12 and 1, Yaakov anointed it, and then God took this monument and plunged it down into the earth and supported the world. And then the ark rested, you know, in the Beit HaMikdash. So Aron is ark, by the way. It's literally Aleph, Resh, Nun. So um, that's very close to Aharon. So uh, there's that. But that's not even uh, what uh, Akav decided to drop because he was really looking at the footnote of all this. And so uh, apparently this came from the Zohar. And so the footnote here says, actually, let me just give you the Zohar portion because it is Zohar Bereshit, uh, 230, passage 1. This is the Zohar uh, section that you can find this information. And here's the footnote. Perhaps it expresses the idea that the Zadik is the world's cornerstone. The Zadik is the world's cornerstone. I'm just kind of letting that sink in for a second. Pun intended, because I realized this stone was sunk into the earth. Okay. Radal and Pirke de Rebbe Eliezer, 35, explains, Even though the world's cornerstone was laid at creation, the cornerstone was laid at creation. Okay, like, from this stone, all creation came forth, so... Um, Big Bang Theory is a little bit different now when you think about the uh, scientific theory that may be. Uh, definitely there was a bang. I get it. The voice of Hashem shadows the cedars, you know, like anytime the voice of Hashem speaks, there's that. And we know that the word is literally the voice of Hashem. So there's that. And then this already happened before. And now we got Yaakov anointing this stone and bowing before it and then Hashem plunges it into the earth so how does that work how does something that happened before now become something that's happening in the present that is set up for the future it's a thing of the past you know I think about the name of Hashem literally the Yod and the hay and the Vav and the hay that word is based off of Yiye like it shall be, and it was, and it is, you know, and so Hashem's name is, is basically, you know, pointing out the fact that there's this past, present, and this future, and it's all happening simultaneously. So there's that, that is like, okay, because before Hashem, there is no past, there is no present, there is no future, there is no time, you know, and Hashem is light. And so in light, you know, time doesn't seem to exist because remember, time moves at the speed, uh, like time has a speed that it's going at, you know, and light has a speed that it goes at. And so you kind of look at light and time, how they kind of have like this uh, sort of correlation when you try to measure, you know, because uh, the speed of light Basically, you know, it takes a certain amount of time for that to happen. But if you think about just light itself, I mean, that's beyond measure. So anyway, that is just kind of what made me stop to think about this, because it's just kind of like, 
of course, something that happened already at creation can later take place and assume its place that it was set at when creation was brought forth. So, it says God used Jacob's Matzeva to support it. So, here we see that we have another stone. Because remember, Yaakov gathered these other stones on the Temple Mount. And he made himself basically into an altar and laid down like his father did as an Akedah. And so we see a picture here making himself a living sacrifice. And remember, Yaakov is also called the Lamb of God. Uh, and then you see the fact that he is laying down like a lamb that was laid down in and on the same mountain, which is, again, the sacrifice of Yitak, he was substituted with a ram. And then um, these stones become one. And then Hashem provides oil from Hashemayim. So that's another thing. Hashem provided the anointing oil that Yaakov used. So Yaakov didn't go get his own oil. Hashem was like, here, why don't you use this to anoint my Mashiach? You know, because we know Mashiach is called the the li the living uh, the the chief cornerstone, basically. But he is the stone of living stones, basically. You know how we're all built up on him. We are called ourselves living stones, built up into a spiritual temple. Well, if we're living stones built on Mashiach Yeshua, that would make Mashiach Yeshua like not only the chief cornerstone but the chief living stone. So, yeah, so that stone was anointed with oil and it was basically supporting the foundation stone that was already laid. So you would think that one plus one makes two, but apparently one plus one makes one. I don't know. That's just crazy to me. But I will continue. It says the symbol. This symbolizes that Yaakov, the chosen one of the forefathers, and his 12 righteous sons. Okay, so now we have a picture again of Mashiach and his 12 Talmudim with Yaakov and his 12 sons, which his sons are called B'nai Yisrael, and we are called B'nai Yeshua or B'nai Yisrael because remember Yeshua and Yisrael are likened to be one and the same because all of Yisrael, when they're unified, equal Mashiach because he's a body of many members and there's that so anyway uh, it says that Yaakov the chosen one of the forefathers and his 12 righteous sons represented by the 12 stones that merged into one became the spiritual foundation of the universe they provided the basis for the Jewish nation and whose center the Shekinah would rest and thus they provided the cornerstone of the Beit HaMikdash. The Midrash highlights the responsibility that rests on all Jewish people to instruct their offspring in Torah and mitzvot. Okay, um, I'll keep going here. I had a second thought. Uh, and it says, thus strengthening the cornerstone of the universe. Then on the next page, it says that the heads of the city are compared to the cornerstone, which is a matzeva. And if you think about the city that is built up on a hill and the light 
that Mashiach was teaching us about that we're the cause to shine before all men. Well, who do you think the head of that city is? The head of the city that is built up on the hill. None other than Mashiach Yeshua, who is the chief cornerstone. So again, being built up on him, super important. Akav Todarabah for sharing that. Incredible information. Now, want to uh, point out Sefer Mitzvot. By the way, this is by way of Stav Soldat. So, again, this is the volume 1622. Sefer Mitzvot says, The term Matzeva, literally a structure, which we now know, cornerstone. And it says, in this verse, um, refers to a structure that was in earlier days, key phrase, associated with worship idolatrous worship and now forbidden in other contexts as well okay so now we learn a little bit more about this matzeva that it's a matzeva if it was previously associated with idol worship so think about different things that may be set up that um, are apparently used to bless the name of God but they were formerly used by uh, idolaters. And, um, you know, one would take from the idolaters and be like, no, that's not what that's for. We're going to use it for this. Well, there's a lot of that that happened via the institution of Rome. And so this is why it's important, again, not taking a shot at Christianity. But I just want to point out that if you examine things that are set up that previously belong to idols, you don't want to do that because you would be violating Devarim 1622. So this is why it's important to search out diligently things that you use to bless the name of God. You know, you don't want to take from idols and use it for God. You know, especially things, well, not especially, but you don't want to take things from idols that was used for idolatrous worship, literally used in rituals, and then take that and use it to bless Hashem. Like, that don't work. But anyway, uh, it says here, we, in a Sefer HaMitzvot again, we are commanded not to erect a matzeva in any location. Regarding this, you shall not erect for yourselves a matzeva, which Hashem, your God, detests. Okay, so it says Hashem detests the use of such structures in his service because they are a feature of idolatry. Okay, so don't do that. Which, by the way, if you think about that, think about us as human beings. Before we were blessing the name of Hashem, when we used to live like idolaters in the ways of the world, you know, I mean, I, I think I need to go over some some sections of passages on that. Uh, let's see here. Okay, so we got like Galatians 4, 8 here it says that uh, let's go with starting in verse six. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So 
again, by the way, because your sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That is a conversion for us, by the way. So most people might be like, oh, I didn't know I was Jewish or I'm not Jewish or you're Jewish. Were you born Jewish? Okay, well, here you go. Answer all those questions with this one little phrase that um, because your sons, God sent forth his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts, which the spirit of his son is the Ruach HaKodesh, his son, Mashiach Yeshua. Therefore, anyone who is in Yeshua is a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 But if you look at what is the new creation that we are in Mashiach Yeshua, none other than a son of God. And again, go back to last week's parasha about children of God. You know, what does that mean? You know, we are made from the essence of Hashem which is a Yehudi. One who is made from the essence of Hashem is a Jew. So this is why you can't claim being a Jew based off of natural birth. You have to be born from above. This is why the people in Acts chapter 2 had to get converted. They had to undergo the mikvah. And it's just like, but these people are called Jews according to the text. And it's like, they were. But the thing is, is when the spirit of Mashiach enters into our hearts and adopts us as sons, we become new creations. So this is what Yeshua was talking about when he was teaching or when he was conversing with Nakdimon in Yochanan 3. And Nicodemus, by the way, that's his Hebrew name, Nakdimon. And uh, there was a little drop in the Midrash Gitchi Psalm about that a couple of weeks ago. And it said that um, that name, Noctimon, is about the sun shining forth for him. So all about the light and everything. So with that being said, you know, we're talking about here that there's a new birth. So were you born Jewish? You can say yes. You should say yes anyway, because anyone who is a Jew, they had to be born. So there's that, you know, two births. It's just like, well, somebody may have been in their first birth born Jewish. And that's great. But you also have to be, you have to undergo the mikvah. You have to enter into Torah. And once you do that, you're born again, which is the spirit of Hashem. You know, you have to be born from above. The Torah did not resonate from the earth. It came from Hashemayim, came from Hashem. So by default, any of the Torah, any of its mitzvot are not man-made. Okay. They're not traditions of men. And all of that, that's uh, Galatians 4, 6. Need to get to verse 8, so we got a way to go. Here we go. Verse 7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through Hashem. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. Okay, so you look at the fact that formerly... Who were you subjugated to? And uh, let's see here. Back. Okay. So going back to the previous chapter, because this is kind of where he started. And he was saying that um, Mashiach redeemed us from the curse of the Torah. Because remember, if you're disobedient to Torah, you're under a curse, which he also said that in previous verses here. But 
uh, just verse four, it says, for as many as are for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So not only abiding by them, which, by the way, abiding in Mashiach, not only is believing in him, but doing the same things he did, looking at that word abide and then look at the word perform. So you abide in the law and you perform the law. Okay. But anyway, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Then it says Mashiach redeemed us from that curse, because remember, while we were disobedient, and while we didn't know anything about Hashem, Mashiach already paved the way for redemption by offering himself up as a living sacrifice for us to atone for our disobedience. So when you look at the fact of coming to believe in Mashiach and being, quote unquote, saved, what does that mean? That means you're delivered now from blatant disobedience and brought into not only obedience, because that's the only thing that's left, but as well as you're empowered now. Because remember, the power of the resurrection is what is at work within us, because that is the Ruach HaKodesh. It is by the spirit that Hashem brought forth Mashiach from the grave. <clears throat> if that is the case for Mashiach, then how much more so for us that we should be brought forth from disobedience and into obedience and abiding in Mashiach is abiding in that, you know, walking in that, performing the mitzvah, performing obedience, being faithful to Hashem, which is the word faith in Hebrew, which is emunah. It's all about obedience and diligence and faithfulness, serving. Okay, that's all the same thing. So if one is said to have faith in Hashem, that's what all that means. Verse 14 in chapter 3 is what I was trying to read. <laughs> in order that in Mashiach Yeshua, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, which, by the way, the idolaters, the pagans, the non-Jews. So in Mashiach, the blessing of Abraham comes to the non-Jews so that we would receive the promise of the spirit through faith. So now, when you have a non-Jew who turns away from non-Jewish things, they now enter into Mashiach because they're turning away from things of things that do not pertain to obedience, things that do not pertain to Torah. They're turning away from idolatry, which, again, in Tractate Megillah, it says a Jew is one who repudiates idolatry. So basically, you become Jewish even before a formal conversion. And if that was not enough, Art Scroll Tehillim, Introduction to Tehillim 27 of all Psalms. This is by way of Captain Yisrael, so shouts out to Cap. I um, will be definitely uh, getting that source from him because this is what it says. That... In a nutshell, paraphrased that one is a Jew when they are not even formally converted, but they're seeking and following the ways of Hashem. Yeah, I'm stopping on purpose. I'm just, I just need that source. But for now, just know that, believe that, and trust that. 
that even before formal conversion, if you're walking in the ways of Hashem, you've turned your back on idolatry, you've now began to walk in what it means to be redeemed from the curse of the Torah, which is to be redeemed from disobedience and empowered to be obedient, you're Jewish. This is why I always say, come out of her, my people, as is talked about in Revelation, about coming out of Rome and Babylon, Rome and Babylon synonymous, um, which is Rome, which is the church. And God is going to call people out of the church. He is already doing that. He will continue to do that. And um, there is already the love of the word of God, which is the Torah, uh, growing cold because there's this idea of unhitching from the Tanakh, you know, this idea that um, in the context of church talk, we need to get rid of the Old Testament because, you know, it's not relevant for us and it's shaming us and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, because these things are happening, no one's paying attention to all this kind of stuff. You know, there's a, a love of God. There's a love growing cold because people are being distanced from Torah now, you know, and uh, if you're not walking in the ways of Torah, you definitely have a little bit of distance going on. But you can say that there's a lot of mitzvot that the church is still keeping. And that's just like, yes, Baruch Hashem, which means that they're Jewish which means that they need to learn that, know that, so that they can continue to grow in the love of God, you know, and not be distanced from him and be in uh, peril of falling away. Because that's the thing. Remember about the Madzeva, a lot of Madzevas are set up, you know, within the church system. And it's just kind of like there's a phrase that says uh, Christianity is idolatry, but a Christian is not an idolater. Because here's the deal. We don't know who is really for God and who is really not for God because everybody's doing the same thing, you know, and you can have people who show up on a weekly basis and chant and praise and say they love God and carry their Bible. But what happens when they leave? What are they doing in their private time? You know, and what's really going on in the heart? So we can't judge a book by its cover. You know, and man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. There's all that. And then you go with the fact that early or earlier in Romans, uh, even though we didn't quote Romans, but in Romans at the first part of the book, the letter, it's like, uh, it's a letter, not a book, but in the letter to the Romans and uh, man, I'm just going to source it out. Hang on. It talks about this, about the inwardness that we have to have. Because you need to know that uh, one is not a follower of God outwardly. Okay, so <clears throat> this is Romanos chapter 2 and um, it's 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Verse 29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Ruach HaKodesh, <clears throat> not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So if you think about it again, man looks at the outside, God looks on the heart. There it is right there. You know, uh, man can't uh, praise you as a Jew 
No one can tell you that you're a Jew. The only way that you know that you're a Jew is from Hashem, by His Spirit, by the circumcision of the heart, by your obedience to His Word, and repudiating idolatry. So if you're seeking to follow Hashem and love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, look at what's going on in the heart. So anyway, all that to say, um, this is why I'm so um, adamant about speaking to people who are believers and followers of Yeshua, like truly loving him, truly knowing him. Hey, just want to let you know you're Jewish. And I know that's like a hot word because apparently Jews don't believe in Mashiach and they don't believe that there is a hell and that they don't. Um, they're they're against God's son. So they reject the the New Testament, quote unquote, again, church terms. And uh, they don't celebrate him and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, have you heard about Lapid? Have you heard about Mashiach, Yeshua himself? Have you heard about the Talmudim of Mashiach, Yeshua? Have you heard about the myriad, myriads and acts, you know, who believe in Mashiach, Yeshua, who are zealous for Torah? Like, have you heard of any of that? Um, if you haven't, I'm going to give you that verse. It's Acts 21, 20. This is definitely something that I want all of you to um, definitely have. Okay, it says, when they heard this, they praised Hashem. Then they said to Shaul, you see, brother, how many thousands, myriad, myriads of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the Torah. It's not a new thing when you think about a Jew who believes in the Mashiach <laughs> and who walks as an Orthodox Jew. Because Orthodox, again, Jewish Encyclopedia, means Torah true. Okay, so if you're true to the Torah, that makes you Orthodox. So then you put that with this passage here, believing in Yeshua, being zealous for Torah. Look at the next verse. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews living among the Gentiles to turn away from Moshe, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. Or some translations say follow other Jewish customs. This would be your oral Torahs. This would be your Halakha, Minhag. Okay, that all falls under this. So that's the accusation that was leveled against Shaul. And you can keep reading the rest of the chapter to find out what happens. But needless to say, the way we formerly lived, um, Ephesians chapter 2, I want to bring that up. Because it's important to know, like, this is not just some idea that we used to be um, idolaters and now we're not. And because we've crossed over from death into life, you know, like we're Jewish now, we're alive, we got new life and... Um, We've torn down those previous pillars, so to speak, and now we're serving Hashem. Like, that's not something that's new. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you used to walk when you conformed to the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Again, disobedience, the power of the prince of the air, the ways of this world, that all equals death, that all is the curse of the Torah. And Mashiach redeemed us from that. 
So this is why the statement of you've crossed over from death into life is a big deal. That is Yochanan 5.24. Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in me, or and believes in him who sent... Oh my goodness. Freudian slip? I think not. Because, you know, many times it's just like, yeah, you know, how do you attain eternal life? Believe in Yeshua. It's just like, no? So what does the Torah say? And then Mashiach right here <laughs> says that whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me. Okay? So the way to believe in Mashiach is to believe in Hashem and then to hear the word that Hashem places in the mouth of Mashiach. Which, by the way, if you look at that whole picture right there, this is literally the Torah. Remember Anoki, I wrote myself down and gave it to you. I gave over my essence. When Hashem speaks, it's Yeshua. You know, like Yeshua is the manifestation of the voice, the spirit, the Shekinah of Hashem. And so Yeshua is like, when you listen to what I'm saying, which is Torah, and then you believe in Hashem, which is the one who sent me. So by default, you're believing in me because if you're receiving him, you're going to receive me because you can't hear the word unless you hear me. So it's all connected. And then it says, okay, so let me reread the verse now with all that in mind. Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. So how do you obtain eternal life? What does Yeshua say? I.e., what does the Torah say? I.e., what did Hashem say? So if you're doing those things, you believe it, which you can only believe it if you do it. It's one thing to believe that you'll get hit by a car when you cross the street. If you actually get in the street and get hit by a car, okay, just saying. Like, you don't need to go out and get hit by a car to believe in it. But because you believe that that is true, you refrain from putting yourself in the street to get hit by the car. So therefore, if you believe that the word of Hashem is true, and he says that if you don't do this, you will die, that means you believe that enough to do it so that you do not die. What I'm talking about is spiritual death, but even to supersede that, even though we die in this world, we obviously know that we're brought to life in the world to come, and to be um, separate from the body is to be present with Hashem, so all of that, either way, there's life life abundantly and we want to make sure that we fall on the side of being resurrected to life and life abundantly as opposed to being resurrected to judgment and shame that speaks for itself but anyway so you have eternal life if you have that and then it says and there's a there's an and it says you will not be judged you have crossed over from death to life okay you formerly were in ways of paganism and idolatry and now you're crossover from death into life and because of that you're a new creation because of that you're a Yehudi because of that you're a child of Hashem okay so now that this is the case about the Matzeva back to Sefer Mitzvot it says the description of the Matzeva that the Torah forbids with this Mitzvah is as Rambam with a mem of blessed memory wrote that is a tall structure of stones or earth. It was the practice of idolaters to build and gather near it 
for their evil practice, their evil service. Then it says that in Hilkot Avodah Zerah, which is the Mishneh Torah, by Rambam with a mem, it says this structure is described as gathering point for people to worship an idol. In Sefer HaMitzvot, Rambam mentions that the idol would actually be placed upon the structure. Either way, this Matzeva displayed a prominent role in idolatry. So whether it's the foundation or the idol itself, it's still called a Matzeva. So if you're building a platform to put your idol on, you're making a Matzeva, which again, you got the one plus one makes one. Whether it's the foundation for the Matzeva, or if it's the item that's placed on the foundation, it's a Matzeva. <clears throat> so then it says in the next sentence, it is for this reason that scripture distance us from this practice, commanding that we ourselves should not construct a Matzeva like it, even for the purpose of worshiping the almighty Baruchu, so as to distance us to eliminate anything related to idolatry from our attention and thoughts. This is similar to the reason that we wrote just above in the previous mitzvah regarding the prohibition of planting a tree in the Beit HaMikdash. So yeah, so you notice these two mitzvot are right together because in the previous verse it says don't set up an Asherah, a, a tree of blessing basically, next to uh, the altar in the Beit HaMikdash. You don't want to plant a tree in the house of God. So there's that. So, um, and I'm calling the Beit HaMikdash house of God because that's literally what Beit HaMikdash means. So, um, if you think about the implications of all that, that is absolutely cray cray. Then my last footnote here says, since the Matzeva was a regular uh, feature of idolatrous practices, the Torah forbids us to use it even in the service of Hashem. And I would submit to you, if you look at the way the Mishkan was built, it technically is a Matzeva. Because remember, the collection of the half shekel, those are all brought together and made into a foundation for the Mishkan to be built upon, the tabernacle. So if you think about that, we made a, basically we've made a, what is this? Dun, dun, dun. We made a structure and then we um, we made a platform and then placed a structure on top. So we're not to make a Matzeva, but we're to build a temple, build a Mishkan. And it's just like, that's a Matzeva. And it's like, okay, so Yaakov set up a Matzeva, even though he didn't set up a Matzeva, but it was a Matzeva. So what is going on here? This is just crazy when you think about it. Basically, it boils down to... If it ain't from Hashem, it's idolatrous. You know, like, as far as the the use and the service of it. You know, like, as far as this structure, this image, you know, and uh, I'm being very specific here because if I say it's not from, if it's not from Hashem, it's idolatrous, then it's just like, cars didn't come from God, they're idolatrous, they're built on tires, and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, do not collect $200. Do not pass go. You need to get away from the table and play a different game because, 
you just took that way out of context. So anyway, I just want to make sure I'm completely in context here that I'm talking about when it comes to um, structures. We're talking about structures. If Hashem didn't build it, we don't go to it. Okay? So, all right. Anyway, I realize that can be taken out of context too. But uh, let me just say this. There's a reason that the Almighty Baruchu so as to distance us to eliminate anything related to idolatry from our attentions and thoughts. Okay, that probably didn't make any sense because I read the middle of the sentence. But we ourselves should not construct a Madzeva. And uh, even for the purpose of worshiping the Almighty, Baruchu, with it. So as to distance us from anything related to idolatry. From our attentions. And from our thoughts. Alright, so I'm going to leave it there. So enough of that. Now, um, shout out to the mighty Haver. I was blessed with the Midrash Rabbah for 24 hours. So, I've used two of those hours already. And I'm going to keep going here. So, first of all, the way that I uh, got my hands on this book is because I asked him if I could read it because I was looking for something I read two years ago. And the Midrash Rabbah does not come with a search button. So Art Scroll, if you're hearing this, please put a search button in your Midrash Rabbahs. That would be helpful. But anyway, um, I thought it was completely impossible but nonetheless, I put forth the effort to do this. And shouts out to the Avengers that were around me. They lifted me up in prayer and they said, Hashem, may you help our Havivi find this, you know, whatever he's looking for. We don't know what it is. And, you know, to think about the fact that that happened. I mean, that's love right there. You don't even know what your brother's trying to accomplish. But because it's the word of God, you're just like. Hashem help him, you know, it's just like, makes me kind of cry a little bit, but I uh, appreciate that, and I still thought it was impossible, but I was definitely the man who spoke to Yeshua when he was just like, heal my daughter, and, you know, help my faith kind of thing, and I was just like, I don't know how I'm going to find this, I read this two years ago, I don't even remember where it was, thank Hashem that Devarim Rabbah is only one volume and it's not that big of a book but there are a lot of pages and it took me almost 45 minutes to find this well it probably did according to Stop Soul Dot he's crazy on his timekeeping but anyway I guess that's good because he's kind of the winter soldier soldiers have to be very meticulous but anyway it came from Nidzavim Okay, so I don't even know Nidzavim, really. Like, that's way almost at the end of Devarim. But, nonetheless, I thought it was like Ray A or something. And I really didn't know, but I was just trying to guess. And uh, that's my introduction, by the way. So now here we go. It's from Devarim Rabbah. Midrash Rabbah Devarim. 8-3. Uh, when it is in... Parashah Nitzavim says the Midrash on a further exposition of the topic of Torah study just cause I want to know how they got into this what verse were they looking at <laughs> of course I don't even know why I guessed 
or why I was even why I'm even surprised. It says that um, it's based off of Devarim 30 verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today, it is not hidden from you. It is not distant. Good night. Uh, since I'm on this page, I just saw this because it's talking about renewing the covenant. So this is an interesting phrase. It says, as the Humash commentators note, the Torah does not specify which mitzvah it is referring to. <sighs> For this commandment. It's not. Oh my gosh. Okay. The Humash is saying it does not specify. Yeah, because you would just look at Devarim 30. I mean, wow. Okay. It is referring to, and it says the Midrash apparently understands it as a reference to prayer, which is uttered by the mouth. And it says this comes from the heart. Okay. Well. I'm swerving, everybody, in case you didn't notice. All right, so this is from the Insights. It says, Renewing the Covenant, the Evening Prayer, Shem Mishmael offers a different explanation on how this discussion is relevant to Parsha Nitzavim. Please tell us. The world, or the word tefillah, which is prayer, denotes connection, the cleaving of man to God. It is no easy task for material man, tainted by the venom of the primeval serpent, to draw close to the holy. From the time of Adam's banishment from Gan Eden until the arrival of Abraham, the Torah makes no mention of prayer. Of the many righteous who populated the world in those centuries, none, none, N-O-N-E, which means no one, possess the spiritual fortitude to attach himself to God in this manner. Abraham was the first to accomplish this feat, to transcend his earthly roots and form a personal bond with God through the medium of prayer. This would be why in Romans 10 verse 9, Shaul repeats, what the Midrash Rabbah is really relating right here. Oh, I got so many Bibles open. Which one am I going to use for this? Because I don't want to flip from my bookmarks. Okay, but anyway, I'm going to use this one. Go to Romans chapter 10. Because if you realize in Romans chapter 10, Shaul repeats this whole section of devouring, by the way. Um, he starts in verse 8. No, he doesn't start in verse 8. He starts in... Um, Verse 6, by the way. But I'm skipping all that because I will definitely swerve from my swerve from my swerve. Because I'm supposed to be reading what I was looking for. But anyway, it says that um, Romans 10, 9. For with the heart, a person believes in Mashiach, resulting in his justification. And with the mouth, he acknowledges and confesses, resulting in and confirming salvation so put that with this <laughs> from the Midrash Rabbah chapter 8 in Parashat Nitzavim that um, form a personal bond with God through the medium of prayer okay then it says scripture says whoever believes in him 
whoever adheres to and trusts in and relies on him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew or Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord over us all, and he is abounding in riches for all who call upon him. Yeah, put that with the Arch Scroll Tehillim introduction to Tehillim 27. Just get some help. Good night. Okay, so Abraham, though, was able only to establish Shakarit, the morning prayer, which is recited in the light of the new day, symbolic of a world illuminated by God's attribute of loving kindness. When God looks with favor upon mankind, the path of prayer forged by Abraham and deeded to his descendants is traversed in morning light and the radiance of the divine countenance that is turned towards man. Okay, so in other words, Abraham gave us Shakarit. The word boker, which is morning, is related to bikur, which is discernment, because it is a time of clear vision, of easy discernment between one object and another. This is where the daylight mitzvahs come from, by the way. So how do you know what time it is to wrap tefillin and to dawn zizit? Well, it's boker, when the distinction time comes. So that's where the halakha and the halakhic time enters in for that. This is called zamanim, halakhic times. So anyway, uh, similarly, the prayer of morning symbolizes a period of clarity when man's perception of God is unoccluded between or and the air between them is clear. Yitzhak built upon his father's accomplishments. Now, when that happens, look at the pattern here. When Yitzhak built upon this, this doesn't mean that he did not do Shakarit. This meant that he did Shakarit and Minka. So connect that all back to everything we've discussed thus far. Yitzhak has this stone, or Slika Yaakov has the stone that is erected as a pillar that is anointed with oil that Hashem gave him from Hashemayim, that stone is pushed down into the earth with the foundation stone. So we have a foundation stone on a foundation stone to be the foundation stone. And this is the stone that the ark rested upon. So the stone that was in the center of the earth is now protruding out of the earth. And that's where the ark rested in the Beit, in the Beit HaMikdash. Because they didn't put the ark on the floor. And they weren't going to put the ark on a table. And so Hashem was like, put the ark on Yeshua, just like a tefillin box. Because Yeshua is the foundation stone. Yeshua is in the Holy of Holies. Yeshua is the foundation of the world. Because the Zadik is the foundation of the world. We just talked about all of that. And then you got the fact that the ark rests upon the foundation of the world. The Torah rests upon Mashiach Yeshua. So what was the dove bringing down on top of the head of Mashiach after his mikvah? Crown of Torah. Because he is the king as well as the Kohen Gadol. And the Kohen Gadol also wears a crown on his head. It's called a Zitz. Okay. And on the Zitz is Kadosh Le Hashem. Holy to Hashem. Hashem, you're awesome. I wanted to talk about so much. But uh, I'm just going to talk about whatever you give me. So whatever time I got, let's use it. Midnight tour study just went past an hour. Burkishem. Now, uh, Yitzhak here, instituting Minka, recited at afternoon, as the day fades and the shadows of evening grow long. Okay, so 
Just want to let you know, Minka technically happens anytime after midday, after the sun reaches its highest point and starts to, you know, so there's this hours from when it arises above the horizon all the way to its peak point. Anytime during that frame is Shakari. Okay, so if you're sleeping in like Shlomo on Temple Inauguration Day, which Bezrat Hashem, we don't because we need to wake up and do Shakari. But just in case, if you're oversleeping and waking up late, if the sun hasn't reached its highest point yet, please do Shakari. <laughs> you know, uh, there's that. And then if uh, you think about the fact of, man, if I get off work, I get off work at like 530 and it's like almost dark and it's just like, if it's not dark yet, you still get to do Minka. So Baruch Hashem, because some people I know get off at two or three or even one, those blessed, fortunate souls who do that. But, uh, you know, even if that happens, don't feel like because you get off work late and it's still light outside that you can't do Minka because you can do Minka all the way up until this point where you see that it says the shadows of the evening the day fades and the shadows of the evening grow long. So as long as there are not three stars in the sky, get your Minka on. All right. So the dwindling light of the afternoon period represents a time in which God's loving kindness is intermixed with the attribute of strict justice. So this is where Chesed and Givura come together at this point. And uh, this makes me think about the Shalosh Sudot. So I want to read that real quick. Uh, Shalosh Sudot. I won't lose my place in the other the other thing over there because I now know it by memory. Check this out. So on the Shalosh Sudot in the Art Scroll Sudor. This is, by the way, called Third Meal. And it's like the final meal of Shabbat. The most anticipated meal that you do. And uh, this meal, by doing it, you merit to hasten the return of Mashiach so this meal is super important but um, it's basically spelling out Yitzhak in the first few verses here of members of the sanctuary who yearn it's an acrostic by the way what in the world all right swerving again because uh, if you look at the outline it says bet yod sari kuf so that's Yitzhak and then Lamed Vav Resh Yod Yitzhak Luria, really? And then they put that together with the I shall prepare the feast, which starts with an olive. So that whole paragraph, Atkenu Se Udata, I shall prepare the feast of perfect faith. They put that together with members of the sanctuary who yearn to see the glow, which starts with a bet. So Av Yitzhak Luria. Come on, man. This is crazy. I'm searching through the footnotes. They have to say something about that. The brief paragraph based on the Zohar is used to introduce the sacred songs composed by the Holy Arizal, Rabbi Yitzhak Luria. For each Shabbat meal, it begins with this exhortation, those present that they prepare for spiritual experience of the Shabbat feast. The virtues which will be extolled in this paragraph and in the succeeding Zimmer. So, just if you extract the section uh, Yitzhak, the uh, line that corresponds to the Chet is be exalted now at this very time in which there is favor, but no anger. That is Minka. 
So the Chet of Yitzhak represents the fact that there's this intermixing here that is going on as the day fades and the night sets on. That there is this basically a semi-darkness. Uh, it's a dwindling of light. And there's a time where God's loving kindness is intermixed with the attribute of justice. And they call this feast in the Shalosh Sudot the, um, the Feast of the Sacred Apples and um, the Feast of Zer Unpin. Okay, so we have basically Memtet time. And notice this time is when the final lamb is offered, by the way, the, the Korban Tamid, that's two lambs a day. This is when Mashiach was on the crucifixion stake. And uh, it was at this time that pretty much he gave up the ghost. So there's all that. Good night. Okay, trying to read. And then it says that um, not only is the loving kindness and the attribute of strict justice intermixed, but it says his radiance is withheld from in part from the world. The greatness of Yitzhak's service was such that even in semi-darkness, in the lessening of God's favor, Yitzhak drew close to God through prayer. What did Mashiach do when he was on the crucifixion stake right before the end of his life? He was praying. What did he pray? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Who else or what else happened? There was a thief on a stake next to him who said, remember me when you come into your kingdom, which was him basically saying, I make Teshuva now. Please personally attach me to you because I want a personal bond with God through prayer. This is my prayer because I'm talking to you right now, which means I'm talking to Hashem. And because Hashem sent you here, if I'm speaking to you, I'm by default speaking to him because y'all are connected. Y'all are one. You know, I and my father are one. Uh, somebody, I think, said you said that. So I'm talking to you because I want to talk to him um, because you're right here in front of me and kind of thing. So, yeah. So anyway, that's Shashuva prayer. This is all happening right now during what we're talking about. Yitzhak drew close to God through prayer and his prayer was of such fervence and devotion as to cut a path across the heavens that would remain for all time the way of the afternoon prayer. The prayer Yaakov, the prayer of Yaakov overshadowed those of both his forefathers. Okay, anyway, to finish my thought, so the thief next to Mashiach enters into this path that's cut across to the heavens at this Minka time, where there is no strict judgment, uh, but where there is loving kindness, there's a semi-darkness. Mashiach himself is the light, so even though it's dark, it's light. Even though there's been earthquakes and the the day was darkened, you know, he's next to the light, which is Mashiach, and he's entering into Gani Din with him. So all that's happening on the crucifixion stake, which happened corresponding to Minka. It started at Shakarit. So even Mashiach's Akeda typed and shadowed the first Akedah because the first Akedah was supposed to actually complete at Shakarit, but it didn't get completed until Minka because of the the ram being caught in the thicket and all the different temptations of Hasatan to uh, Avraham, to Yitzhak, and to Sarah. So anyway, that's another Midrash for another time. 
But anyway, it was a prolonged sacrifice that happened throughout the day. So, uh, yeah, there's that. And then we have um, this going on right now. And then, just like Yaakov, his prayer overshadowed those of both his forefathers. So does Mashiach's sacrifice overshadow the Akedah, you know, because Mashiach is the Akedah. What did Yitzhak do? He did what Yeshua did, laid himself down willingly, and Mashiach resurrected, or and Hashem resurrected Yitzhak, just like he resurrected Mashiach. Yitzhak died, Yitzhak died according to all uh, commentaries, and, you know, when the blade basically hit his throat, um, he did, he did, it didn't cut him, but his soul left his body, and that was likened to a death. And so, though he didn't die, he died, but he was resurrected. I'm going to go ahead and do an emet elucidation on that, that that is a remez for the fact that though Mashiach died, he really didn't die. Because we know Mashiach, I mean, he's the word made flesh. And so, at best, you know, you look at the broken tablets, the spirit left the tablets but they were still the sapphire tablets. So the essence is what really causes, you know, this manifestation to be what it is. And so when you look at Mashiach's body on the stake, you know, the outward expression of who he is, you know, was ended, but not the essence of who he is, you know? And so just like Yitzhak's soul flew from his body and then was returned to it, so it was with Mashiach. So anyway, um, there's this whole thing about dying, but not really dying. And uh, just want to throw that in there. Man, this is heavy today. What's going on? All right. So then it says Yaakov, the prayer that Yaakov had oversh overshadowed those of both his forefathers. He instituted the nighttime prayer of Marif which is recited in full darkness, the setting of the sun, which ushers in the dark, symbolizes the turning away of God's face from mankind, the complete withholding of divine favor, the achievement of Yaakov, which he bequeathed to his descendants, was to attain closeness to God through prayer uttered in spiritual darkness. Thank Hashem for that because you know we're in the exile. It is the greatest darkness of the whole existence of mankind. That's why the world is so crazy and so horrible right now. It's Ma'arif. Mashiach says that we must work while it's still day because nighttime is coming. I suggest to you, or I submit to you, that it is nighttime. And uh, we're supposed to be doing Ma'arif right now, which is, even in darkness, bringing the light. So there's that. So then it says... Um, Yaakov showed that when God conceals himself from man and one's inner gaze is nowhere met by even a glimmer of his light, one is still able through intense concentration and summoning of the will to break through all barriers and concealments and forge a connection with Hakadosh Baruchu. This prayer of the world at night issuing from so deep in the human heart deep calls to deep by the way 
is the most powerful of all prayers and climbs higher than any other in the supernal realms. This is alluded to in the words of the Midrash. The evening prayer is not fixed, which can be interpreted as a reference to the fixed place of most prayer in the heavenly precincts, which is transcended by the profound heartfelt prayer initiated by Yaakov. Wow. Marif prayer is not fixed. Therefore, it can transcend. <laughs> transcended by the profound heartfelt prayer. Mm-mm-mm. There are basically there are places that Shakarit meet in the heavenly precinct, and there are there are fixed places that the the uh, Minka reaches. But Marif transcends that because it's from the heart. It's so deep. It's in the darkness, and it's a prayer that takes a lot of effort to really go through. So, Parsha Nitzavim concludes Moshe's oration upon the plains of Moab in which he established a new covenant between God and Yisrael. Yeah, they really just said he established a new covenant, which means if he is establishing a new covenant and the new covenant is teaching Torah, what does that mean about the cup of the covenant that Mashiach says, this is the cup of the covenant? That I give to you. Some translations say new covenant, but it's the cup of the covenant. Either way, whether it's new or whether it's a covenant, it's still a covenant. And it's still not a covenant that takes us away from any other covenant because here's the precedent right here. Moshe is establishing a new covenant between God and Israel. In addition to the covenant they had made earlier at Sinai. The question is raised, why was a new covenant needed? Did not the covenant of Sinai suffice? Shem Mishamuel writes, The purpose of a covenant is not to bind together those who love, those whose love is fresh and whose hearts are open to each other. The purpose of a covenant is not to bind together those whose love is fresh or whose hearts are open to each other. The purpose of a covenant is not to bind together those whose love is fresh and whose hearts are open to each other. I read that three times for a reason. Their devotion is absolute and needs no strengthening. Rather, the purpose of a covenant is to stave off the decay that naturally attends every relationship brought about by the passage of years, change circumstances of principles. The covenant cements the bond that presently exists between the parties so that their love might withstand the vicissitudes of time and place. This was the object of the covenant at Sinai to ensure that the newly minted love between God and Israel, so bright with promise and high hopes, would always remain firm and impervious to time and the change and the currents of change. As the plains of Moab, however, or at the plains of Moab, however, came the ill news that Moshe would not enter Eretz Israel, Yisrael was visited with dire warnings of sin, punishment, with dark prophecies of exile, when God would turn his face from his people, with the onset of such evil times, the covenant of Sinai would not suffice 
to preserve Israel's connection to God with concealment of the divine countenance, i.e. when it becomes night, an unnatural darkness would descend, which could be counted or which could be countered only by a new covenant, one that would aid Israel to stand firm before the fearful and destabilizing events foretold in the prophecy of the Moabite plains, a covenant that will allow them to draw close to God even when he turns his face away. This is why Mashiach did the cup of the covenant with his final Seder with his Talmudim, because he knew what was coming. He knew that Rome was about to rise. He knew that the church was about to be established. He knew that Judaism was about to become a thing of the past, so to speak, as far as the followers of Hashem. He knew that the temple was going to be destroyed. He knew that the oral Torah was in danger of being forgotten. So it would now be codified in what's called the Talmud and the Midrash and all of that, to all these different commentaries. He knew that there would be a separation in his people coming up between Jews and quote-unquote Christians. And it's just kind of like, <clears throat> this is why he gave us the cover of the covenant. So that we can take that and forge this line, just like uh, Yaakov. It says that he cut up our sleek eye, just like Yitzhak, by the way, as the darkness was coming on, says he cut a path across the heavens that will remain for all time. And so if you think about what Mashiach really did, if we return back to his final words to us, come back, the uh, the last bit of teaching that Mashiach gave us, then he knew that through this great darkness, through the fearful and destabilizing events, that he knew that was going to happen. Not only just his crucifixion, but the fact that you know, we would be in this situation today where we're followers of we're followers of Hashem and we're finding out that we're Jewish and we're finding out what a Jew really is. And we're being told otherwise when we don't look at the sources, when we don't look at the word of God and um, thank Hashem for the renewing of the covenant. So Mashiach wasn't doing anything new because there's nothing new under the sun. Anything that Mashiach does, it's under him. So there's that. Nothing new. So then, golly, I'm just want to throw stuff right now. Okay, but anyway, for whence comes the inner strength to rise above the tribulations of exile? Why was the covenant renewed to rise above the tribulations of exile? Then it says to negotiate the darkness and cleave to God despite obstacles in the way. Such fortitude is the legacy of our forefather Yaakov. Here we go who lit a path of prayer through the night of the soul, instilled in his descendants the sense that no place is too dark, nor any affliction too overwhelming, to prevent a Jew from approaching his creator. Yaakov bequeathed to his children his mighty heart. Put that with the heart of Mashiach Yeshua. You've been given the heart of Mashiach Yeshua. Some translations say you've been given the mind of Mashiach Yeshua. But if you look up the Greek on that, it is the heart. I will source that out. 1 Corinthians 2.16 Who has known the mind of Hashem, so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Mashiach. Interlinear, the mind says, Strong's number 3563, which is noose, says understanding and reason. It says the, capac the capacity of each person to think 
The mental capacity to exercise reflexive thinking, the organ of receiving God's thoughts through faith. It's also used in Romans 12, 2 and 3. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may be able to prove the will of God, <clears throat> which, by the way, is Torah. You've got to have a renewed mind to prove that the Torah is that which is good, which is be obedient to it, because good, life, blessing, they're all connected, which is obedience. And it says acceptable and perfect. It says this word is used in the Septuagint for lev and levav. That's the word for heart. And just to look at a text precedence, I am on the fly doing this. Lev is the inner man. It's the mind. It's the will. It's the heart. First use. You ready for this? I'm ready for this. Bereshit 6.5. And God saw that. Uh, and Hashem saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the lev of the human was only evil all the time. So the precedent to the flood, what caused the flood is that the Yetzer and Makshavot, the inclination, the thoughts of the heart was only evil. It was Ra Kol Hayom is the way this verse puts it. So you have to think. If there's ever any point in your day or in your life that you are forsaking evil, that you are filling your heart, your mind, your being with light, there's merit in that. You know, um, many people may think that, you know, I'm not righteous. I'm not a scholar. I'm not a sophisticated uh, person and what what I want you to know right now is think about what you're thinking about do you really love God do you really seek him with all you have are you obedient to what he is giving you what he is showing you are you really desiring to be attached and cleave to him are you rising above the darkness of this exile and I would say you are rising above the darkness of this exile if you're even thinking about what I'm saying right now so there is that just be encouraged one mitzvah is you have no idea you know there are many stories and I can't remember which Zadik this was or which sage rabbinic uh, scholar there was a, a guy who was on his deathbed and he was he was basically crying and he was surrounded by his Talmudim and they were like our, our teacher like you know what's what's wrong and he's like in this world you know a man can pay a few shekels and he can purchase zitzit and he can be united and connected with the Shekinah so close to him. You know, and I don't remember this, the rest of the story, but 
basically insinuating this idea that just through one mitzvah, the proximity and the closeness that we have to the Shekinah is just insane. Uh, there are many stories like this, you know, where uh, people who've had near-death experiences that talk about the the mitzvah of Zitzit being... I mean, we think of Zitzit, yeah, we put them on, they're kind of uncomfortable at some points. When you first start wearing Zitzit, you're, you're like, I'm super hot, I'm going to die, I'm going to burn up, and you keep wearing ZZ and you find out, oh, I'm fine. It's just trying to discourage me not wear ZZ. You know, my body was just freaking out because it's like, what are you doing to me? You're circumcising me. Why? You know, and um, it's just like ZZ is such a big deal in the heavenlies. And it's just like, really? You know, like that? So think about other things that you would do. The fact that you would even pray to Hashem, like the Shema. Like, the Shema is equivalent to the whole Torah. This is why Mashiach says the greatest commandment. Because if you start there, chances are you can do the other mitzvot. Chances are you will do the other mitzvot. You know, it's just like Shabbat. If you're doing Shabbat, um, all the, pretty much the rest of the observance will flow out of that. You know, because it can't, you can't help it. If you're keeping Shabbat, you're keeping Torah. Like, Shabbat is equivalent to the whole Torah. So again, it's one mitzvah. I don't know. Study of Torah, that's equivalent to the old Torah too. So even if you're listening to this podcast, we're studying Torah together. We're fulfilling all 613 mitzvot right now. Hmm. Okay. Okay. And I'm wearing ZZ, by the way. Just, I know you can't see me, but you can hear me. So I just want to let you know I'm wearing ZZ, which also means I'm wearing a head covering. Anyway, uh, probably TMI, but... I don't know. Okay. I I like doing this podcast. I mean, I can just, I can just be myself, which I'm very crazy. Very, very um, extravagant as far as my thinking. So, yeah, I'm just sharing. I'm thinking out loud now. I should be reading this text. I'm going to read the text now. Okay. Such fortitude is the legacy of our forefather Yaakov, who lit a path of prayer through the night of the soul. He instilled... In his descendants, the sense that no place is too dark, nor any affliction too overwhelming to prevent a Jew from approaching his creator. That's legit. Last paragraph. In fashioning the new covenant in the plains of Moab, Moshe drew upon these attributes inherited from Yaakov, which first came to fruition in Yaakov's Ma'ariv prayer. It is for this reason that our Midrash begins its elucidation of Parsha. Nitzavim, with the discussion of this prayer of utmost faith, of boundless potential. This prayer, whose place in the fears of the firmament remains forever unfixed. Wow, I'm glad I read that. That was really cool. Thank you, Hashem, for your awesomeness. Now, Midrash Shabbat 8.3 says the Midrash presents a further exposition of the topic of Torah study. This is to be understood in light of what is written. To a foolish one, wisdom is too lofty. He will not open his mouth at the gate. Mishle 24-7. All right, Shomer Blue. What you got? That's chapter 20, 24 here. 
Mishle 24-7. All right. Okay, commentary says, A fool is overwhelmed by the vastness of the Torah and thinks that it's impossible for him to learn. Thus, when scholars meet at the gate, which is a reference to the Sanhedrin, see Devarim 25-7, he will not open his mouth. Okay. So Sanhedrin, you can look at 25-7 of Devarim and it talks about that. Scholars meeting at the gate. Wow. Lawgiver, Shoftim. Wow, that's okay. All right. So the fool, uh, when he sees these Torah scholars, he doesn't open his mouth because he has nothing to say. The wise student, however, resolves. Okay. So when you start to make a resolve, you know, like this is overwhelming. This is impossible. Okay. If you leave it there, that's called foolishness. Okay. Not calling you a fool, but just saying that's called foolishness. So how do we leave and escape foolishness? We resolve to learn two laws a day to tomorrow until he learns the entire Torah. Vayikra Rabbah 19.2. Okay. So just start learning something. Okay. That's all you got to do. I would submit to you that if you're if you're listening to me and you think that it's impossible for you to learn the Torah, congratulations, you've now moved yourself into being a wise person who now can open his mouth when he sees scholars, you know, because you got one thing you can say, say that you learn two mitzvahs a day and you end up learning the whole Torah after you do that. That's all you need to say. That's a bomb right there. You just drop it. And your source, Vayikaruba 19.2. Never they say, what? You know, I'm telling you, it'll shut down on table for real. All right. Then next, um, the gate is a place where scholars and judges gather. Notice it puts Shof team and scholars next to each other. In uh, my previous podcast, I talked about the fact that technically the the first resort of Beit Din and uh, halakhic protection or lawful protection justice is should be the Torah scholars, you know, because they're acquainted with the law to know uh, how to apply it because they study it. And today that's kind of crazy because, you know. Um, obviously if there's injustice going on, most people do not go to Torah scholars, just like they go to the police and it's just kind of like, okay, it's probably good to go to the police if there's like a gun or like some kind of weaponry that's involved, but any kind of halakhic, uh, Torah stuff, you know, you can really go to a Torah scholar. They should be able to help you. This is why, uh, see your rabbi or go to a Zakin immediately as a thing. So. I want to encourage you, if you're having some issues, if you're struggling with anything, before you take it upon yourself to try to figure it out, if you need some help, please see Azakin immediately. Please talk to your rabbi. Anyway, um, so, yeah, so we're going here. Okay, it says the gate is a place where scholars and judges meet together. Someone who does not study 
may lose his case at the gate because he will not know how to present his case. After mentioning the powerful efforts of those who toil to attain wisdom, this verse says that fools who do not learn either out of laziness or fear of inadequacy will be exposed when they sit among the learned and have nothing to say. That's from B'nai Shlomo. Homiletically, when a fool prays, he will have lofty thoughts in his mind, but the gate of his heart remains closed. The essence of prayer is in the heart. A lot of uh, prayer tonight. That was from Rabbi Bunim of Pesikta. All right, cool. Todah, Shomer Blue. Interestingly enough, the Midrash Abbas says the same thing, um, but I'm going to go here. What does the meaning of the words to the foolish one wisdom is too lofty mean? Rabbi Tankuma said it refers to a fool who enters a synagogue and sees learned men discussing Talmud, which, by the way, extends out to the term Talmud refers to in-depth discussion and analysis of Mishnas and Beretas. Okay, so if you roll up on a table where they're dropping all sorts of Midrash and Talmud and Rambam and all that kind of stuff, Rashi, you know, any of that kind of stuff, it's just like, whoa, what's going on here? It says, and because he is unlearned, he does not understand what they're saying. He is embarrassed at his lack of knowledge and says nothing to contribute to the conversation. As is stated, he will not open his mouth at the gate. Okay, so... Basically, we need to know that when we're having a Torah study, we're creating a gate. If there's a gate, there's a mezuzah. You know, and what's in the mezuzah? The Torah. Shaddai, literally Memtet, Hashem, you know, like same gematria. Shaddai is the Almighty God. And then Memtet, the angel of Hashem, the angel of the Lord. They have the same gematria. So there's a relation there, there's a connection. Then we find out from Zohar Mishpatim, everything about Memtet, and from Or Hakaim about Memtet, that he is the angel that unifies the name of Hashem. So the angel of Hashem is the unification of Hashem, which is Echad, which is Mashiach, who is the body of many members. Hashem is Echad, Devarim 6.4. Put that all together. Okay, so anyway, Shaddai means Shomer Dalot Yisrael, guardian of the doors of Yisrael. The gate is also a door. This is why we call Mashiach the door, because he says, I am the sheep's gate and the shepherd enters in, you know, and that's the right way to go through the gate and, and interact with the sheep. You don't climb in through the window and go over the fence and all that kind of stuff. Come in through the gate. So where two or more are gathered in my name, buddy. All right. So then it says that's not even on the page. So that's a download from the Ruach HaKodesh. Shouts out to Hashem. Okay. Um, it says that he's embarrassed at his lack of knowledge. Says nothing to contribute to the conversation. Says the term gate refers to nothing but the Sanhedrin. And by extension, any gathering of Torah scholars. Midrash Rabbah has lost his mind. Just equated to the gathering of Torah scholars as a Sanhedrin. Okay. I'm going to continue like nothing just happened. Okay, so it says, and it is written, but if the man will not wish to marry his sister-in-law, then his sister-in-law shall ascend to the gate to the elders. Devouring 25-7. Let's unpack that. 
when a man refused to marry his brother's widow, when the brother had died childless, he must make a declaration before the sages of a Jewish court. The Torah here, as in many other places, refers to this court where the elders meet as the gate. The Proverbs verse is thus saying that the fool who never bothered to study Torah, of course, finds its wisdom too lofty to understand, and he therefore falls silent at the gate where other men engage in Torah dis discussions. Okay, Mishle uh, 31. Eshet Kayil. Let's look at this. Because this is going to take this verse to a whole nother place. Mishle 31. Uh, it is verse 23. Her husband is known in the city's gates. The husband of an Eshkayil. So, gentlemen. Customarily in Judaism... The man is not prayed over on the Arab Shabbat Seder. I just want to point out that there's a reason for that. Not that it's bad or we, that we shouldn't pray for the man at the Arab Shabbat Seder because we are greedy. We love to be blessed and we realize that it's y'all's time to shine. But I'm just saying with all that aside, though, because, OK, this is the point here. Listen, it says her husband is known in the city gates when he sits among the elders of the land. What you are by default praying or sleek the husband is praying of the wife. But what is happening with that specific verse? Just know that, believe that and trust that you're praying that your husband becomes a Torah scholar. You're praying that your husband becomes wise, because if you're saying amen to your Eshet Kayo Braka, that's being prayed over you, your Amen is now extending a blessing back to the one who is blessing. Okay? So if you follow the traditional pray over the wife and move on to the, the Kiddush, the Kiddush, you know, um, the husband is being prayed over just from that one verse alone, that he becomes a wise man and a Torah scholar. This is why. There is also another custom that if you're going to pray over the man and most people do or some people, I don't know how many people do. I'm not even going to go there. But whenever it's prayed, it is either Tehillim 1 or Tehillim 112, which is all about the husband being a lover of Torah. And uh, Tehillim 112 specifically is considered the prayer or the Tehillim that corresponds to Abraham. So just like the Eshet Kayil prayer of Mishle 31 corresponds to Sarah, Tehillim 112 corresponds to Abraham. But Tehillim 112 corresponds to Tehillim 1 because they're talking about both being devoted to Hashem, loving the law of God, taking delight and all that kind of stuff. Either way, that's all encapsulated in Mishle 31.23. And by the way, if you look at the Hebrew letters that correspond to this, it is the letter Nun. Because the Eshekayo Braka is from Aleph to Tav. So, so I just want to let you know that if you pray in about the Nun, which Nun is Aramaic for fish, which means 
righteousness, like a righteous one, because a fish is like uh, considered to be uh, this picture of uh, righteousness, which is all elucidated in the commentary on Yeshua ben Nun, Joshua, son of Nun. Joshua is called the son of the righteous. Nun is like the great, great, great grandson of Yosef. And we know that Yeshua is the son of Yosef, literally in the Basora, but Yeshua is also the son of Yosef in the Torah. So the fact that Mashiach, Yeshua, is called Yeshua ben Yosef, and then Yehoshua is Yehoshua ben Nun, which is Yehoshua ben Yosef, which is Yeshua ben Yosef. Same thing. Son of the righteous. Okay? And then this whole idea with the the concept of the noon is it's Nafli, which is fallen one. And Nafli is also the name of Mashiach because he is one who will die. And because uh, Bar Nafli, son of the fallen one, Mashiach is called Barnafli because he will die. <clears throat> and we know Sukkah 52a that um, Mashiach ben David resurrects Mashiach ben Yosef. And there's that whole story there. Um, this whole idea that the Mashiach will die and be resurrected is all talked about with the letter noon. Not only that, where I would like to take us now is that noon is 50 and what happened on day 50 after Pesach Shavuot the giving of the Torah now connecting all this together about a Barnafli son of a righteous the Torah all of this okay Yeshua what you're saying is that your husband would die and be resurrected how does that work that works every single time you study Torah we learned um, back in one of the parashot, I can't remember, it feels like yesterday, but it was also a long time ago. It was in back in Vayikra, around like Parashat Amor, we were reading in uh, Trugman's Orchard of Delights about killing ourselves in Torah study. And when we're studying, we're toiling so much and we're killing our Yetzahara. We're killing literally our own fleshly desires. And we're being made new. We're being resurrected. So that when we emerge from Torah study, we're seen as literally resurrected like Mashiach. You know, like Bar Nafli. Resurrected by Mashiach ben David. We're called a son of righteousness because Hashem begets us anew. He, we're born anew as we enter into words of Torah. Because words of Torah are all the name of Hashem. And Hashem himself is a mikvah, so entering into Torah is like entering into a mikvah. So if you need to do a mikvah, you do Torah study. This is why it's customary to wash our hands before Torah study, because we undergo a mikvah. The hand washing is likened to a mikvah, and so we enter into the mikvah so we can mikvah. You know, and that is like being immersed in death and being brought up in life, which is why Shaul writes in one of his letters that... Uh, we are immersed into the death of Mashiach and we're also raised with him. So that's the noon. That's what you're praying for your husband. You're praying that your husband becomes wise.
So anyway, and it's actually not even you praying it. You're just saying Amen, you know, and it's like, okay, Brukashem. And by the way, the word Amen ends in the letter Noon. And then the first two letters of Amen is Aleph and Mem, which are the words for Mom. So the Mother Noon, Im Noon, with Noon or Mother Noon, because Im can also mean with. And I realize Im is spelled Ayin Mem. But remember, Aleph and Mem are interchangeable. So there's that. Anyway, I was saying the Midrash offers a second exposition of the Mishle verse. Another explanation, the words, he will not open his mouth at the gate. The rabbis say it refers to a fool when he enters the synagogue, sees learned men involved in Torah study. And he says to them, how does a person begin to study Torah? They say to him, notice it's they. There's like this unified thing. There's not one guy saying this, another guy saying that. Like they're all like, we agree. First one reads from a Torah scroll that says, this is a short text, usually written on a Torah scroll, i.e. a reading primer. That's from the Matnos Kehuna, or a small portion of Torah written separately for teaching children. That's the Rashash based on Gitin 60a. So in other words, when you start off reading from a Torah scroll, you start off with a Humash. It's a little section of Torah. Break it down, you know, and make it children's level. I'll tell you, one of my most favorite sources is my Torah portion coloring book. It's legit. Make fun of me if you won't. But Jewish children books, they're like little ninjas. I mean, little assassins trained up from birth. It's crazy. Anyway, study some Torah books. It's probably why Shem wants us to be fruitful and multiply and have little children of our own. Because if we take Jewish children book to raise up our children, then uh, chances are we're going to learn some amazing stuff. So there's that. Don't uh, let anyone look down upon you because of your youth and suffer not the little children that come to me. If anyone wants to enter into the kingdom, they must become like a child. Uh, first one reads from that. Okay. Then it says from a book that is a full Torah scroll. So go ahead and jump up from the Humash, get yourself a Tanakh, jump into the Hebrew, you know, get yourself a little, little bit more equipped going on. You can probably start stepping into Rashi at this point. Then it says, and then from the prophets. Okay, so now you've moved into the prophets. Okay, and then you can do, um, you know, there are different uh, art scroll, Sika commentaries on the prophets. You can do that. Then it says that, um, and then you go from the holy writings. Okay, these are your your Tehillim. Okay, and remember the big green book we got. This is also Mishle. This is Shomer Blue over here, the Midrash on Mishle. You can do that. Um, this is also any of the letters of the Brit Hadashah. Definitely the Basora, which I would put the Basora you know, probably up there with uh, from a book because it says first one reads from a scroll, little chunks of Torah, then from a book, which are the full Torah scroll. Definitely throw in some Basor as soon as you can. Um, so whether it's uh, reading from the scroll, which is the first step or reading from a book, which is the second step, you might want to put the Basor in there at some point because it's connected. OK, so then it says after you do the prophets, you do from the holy writings. Okay, because, you know, this is a really good step to really 
once you get through all of those previous steps and you get to the holy writing step, this is a good step because, you know, you can glean from Shaul easier. You know, his writings become less difficult the more Torah that you know. And then it's kind of like, well, why were we tripped up on Shaul? Why Shaul says even a thing? Well, because you know so much Torah now. I mean, you're kind of like, I don't understand how people are struggling with that. You literally get to that point. I know it's crazy and bizarre, but it happens. It really does. Then it says, after completing this, or okay, then after completing his study of scriptures, he studies the Talmud. Okay, so now that you've gotten through all that, now jump into the Talmud like full blown. Then he studies Halakha. So Halakha is like way down the list. So if you're dealing with people who tell you not to drive on Shabbat, if you're dealing with people who say don't be paying tithes or zedakah on Shabbat, don't be writing on Shabbat, you know, all this kind of stuff that they bring up, you know, that are not explicitly Torah mitzvot, but they derive from Torah mitzvot. Driving, by the way, doesn't derive from any Torah mitzvot, but that's neither here or there. But when it comes to Halakha, if you're trying to make any rulings on Halakha outside of what your Beit Dean has established, please make sure you've already thoroughly gone through the previous steps here. I'll tell you that I skipped a lot of these steps and I got into this Halakhic um, box and uh, I almost lost the faith because of it. I got so off track that I got into the weeds, went against my Beit Dean, went against my rabbi completely forgot who Yeshua was and wasn't even doing anything, you know, and I was running after other synagogues and um, actually even objected to being Jewish. Like I I called myself a non-Jew and I started like, I'm a goy, I need to convert, you know, and I like undid my conversion and everything. So it was just kind of like, it was, it was bad. And, uh, you know, lots of spiritual darkness ensued and that created a lot of problems. Baruch Hashem for his mercies and me having an ex Kail who was just like, you know what? You need to go talk to your rabbi. You need to quit being an idiot. And she didn't say this, but I mean, this is what really what it was. I was being an idiot. I will confess to that. And, um, you know, she was just like, you need to just go see your rabbi, go talk to him, you know? And I did. And, um, that's why Captain Israel is Captain Israel. He's legit. So anyway, um, Halakha is way down the list. Then even beyond Halakha is the Agadic teachings. So if you're ever reading Jewish literature and you get into these crazy extravagant stories that are just like, what in the world does I don't even you should be like, unless you've gone through these previous steps, forget about it. Now, if it comes up and you're reading it, you just feel like, I don't even know what just happened. What's wrong with Judaism? You know, um, again, do not collect $200. Do not pass go. Um, It's all right. That's way down the list. All right. So anyway, so that's what I was looking at. And the Devarim Rabbah, not that it matters, but I'm checking time. Okay, cool. Uh, So this next little thing it goes into is a parable. And it says the Midrash uses a parable to illustrate the difference between a fool's approach to Torah study and that of a wise man.
It says, Rabbi Yanni, to what may this be compared? To a loaf that was suspended in the air by a rope. A fool who sees the loaf says, who can possibly bring this loaf down? But a wise man, didn't someone suspend this loaf in the first place? If someone could get up there to hang it, someone can get there to retrieve it. So he brings a ladder or a stick. With it, he brings the loaf down. So it is with the Torah study. So it is with Torah study. Anyone who is a fool says, when can I possibly find time to study in the, the entire Torah? One who is wise, however, what does he do? Rather than allowing himself to despair, he studies one chapter until he completes the entire Torah. Footnote. In the parable, the loaf was inaccessible in a direct manner. One had to use another object, a stick, a ladder, as an aid through which to access the loaf. So it is with the Torah. One cannot possibly master it all instantly. So it is with the Torah. One cannot possibly master it all instantly. So it is with the Torah. One cannot possibly master it all instantly. It is necessary to proceed gradually. It is necessary to proceed gradually. It is necessary to proceed gradually with the aid of small incremental Torah learning through which he will be able to reach the desired goal of the knowledge of the entire Torah. That's from Eshed Ha-Nechalim, cited in part by Eitz Yosef. It is literally Acts 15 in a nutshell about nations are coming into Torah. What do we do? We can't mass convert these people with mikvahs and circumcisions all in one day like we do. Some of them don't even know what mikvah is. Some of them don't even know what Hebrew is. And they love God. You know, they want to walk in ways of Torah. The nations are coming to learn his ways. Oh my gosh, like Yeshayahu prophesied. So they said, you know what? These four things are the entry point. They can go past go if they don't do any of these things. And then once they do that... Once they make it through the first gate, notice it's a gate. You enter in through the gate by those. And then it says Moshe is taught and proclaimed in the synagogues every Shabbat. So they're going to start keeping Shabbat. And they're going to start studying the Torah portions. They're going to start learning a chapter a day. They're going to start learning the entire Torah over time, gradually. They're going to use a stick. They're going to use a ladder. They're going to bring this loaf down. That's how it works. So Baruch Hashem. So anyway, that's Midrash Rabbah Devarim 8.3 from Parsha Nedzavim. How in the world do we get to Parsha Nedzavim if we're in Parsha Shoftim? I don't know. But I will tell you some some excerpts here for um, from Shoftim. So this is 5.10. It's talking about the uh, progression of the mitzvahs. So in this Torah portion, we're supposed to appoint a king for ourselves, right? That's after we enter into the land, which how do we enter into the land? We have to abolish the nations of Canaan, you know, all of the idolatry, the uh, idolatrous worship, the idolatrous places, the idolatrous vestments and uh, furnishings. I had to get rid of all that. Okay, we have to cross over from death into life. Even the land had to undergo a circumcision, a removal of what was unnecessary. So then, by the way, um, it is pointed out in this week's Torah portion that all the nations that we had to go in to expel out of the land were granted the opportunity to convert. So it wasn't a merciless killing 
of people because we had to wipe out all these nations. Because if we didn't, they would be called, quote unquote, and literally thorns in your flesh. You're going to have a very uncomfortable existence if you allow anything of idolatry and sin to coexist in your life of righteousness. Those are called thorns. So, yes, when Shaul is writing about the thorn in his flesh, it is some sin in his life that he's like, Hashem, I do not want this. Get it out of here. He's like, no, I'm doing this to humble you and my grace is sufficient. Does that give us a license to remain in sin and allow things to hang around? But it does um, keep us on our toes, keep us making Teshua. If we don't make Teshua for other things, we have that. So it's a safeguard. And Hashem says His grace will cover that. So, don't be okay with it. Fight. That's why it's called fighting the good fight. Okay? Anyway, so... I'm saying that for myself, too. Because... Well, actually, I'm going to be real greedy. I'm actually saying that for myself. Because I know what my thorn in the flesh is. And, uh... Yeah. Let's just say it's, it's still there. And it sucks. <laughs> I normally don't say things suck, but this one does. Okay, anyway. Righteousness is what I long for. Holiness is what I need. Okay, sorry. I'm thinking out loud again. I know, that was terrible singing. Okay, so, enter into the land, appoint a king. Midrash Rabbah Devarim 510. <laughs> And to appoint for themselves a king and to build for themselves a Beit HaMikdash. So we're supposed to get a king and then build a temple. This is why Mashiach, when he returns, is going to build a temple. So if you're praying for the temple to be rebuilt, you're praying for Mashiach to return. Mashiach. Baruch Ababa Shem Adonai. May it be soon in our days. Amen. Okay, so anyway, supposed to build a temple. But guess what? Now Yisrael indeed appointed for themselves a king. That was Shaul. Which, by the way, they didn't even do that appropriately. Listen to um, Ish Pela, a.k.a. Shlomo. Listen to his drosh from two years ago. Parsha Shof team on Masar Shalom's YouTube account. Look that up and uh, Parsha Shof team, that boy, tears up the Bema uh, because it was talking about the fact that the only reason Israel asked for a king is because they rejected Hashem as their king. There's other Midrashim like Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer that says the final king of Israel shall be like the first king of Israel. Shaul was the second king of Israel. Put that together with what I just said. If Hashem was the first king and the final king is going to be Mashiach, there you go. I know, it's uncomfortable to think that Mashiach is Hashem. I mean, semantics and, and things and words, especially English words, just really make that very, very uh, murky. But for lack of a better term, Mashiach is Hashem. Hashem is Mashiach. Is not appropriate. But you think about the uh, context that, um, okay, wait, that was backwards. Hashem is Mashiach, but Mashiach is not Hashem. Because if you look at the fact that 
a rectangle is not a square, but a square is a rectangle. Okay, so Mashiach is like the rectangle, and Hashem is the square, even though Hashem is not a square. But, you know, just for the sake of this example here, just to kind of help, because this really is beyond our understanding anyway. So even as I'm giving you this, it's just a wrong on the ladder because there's way more wrongs to go. But um, really just trying to lay this down that, you know, a square can be a rectangle, but a rectangle can be a square. So Hashem can make himself a rectangle, but that rectangle cannot make itself a square. Mashiach comes from Hashem. He's the essence of Hashem. He's from like literally inside, like the heart. But your heart is small compared to who you actually are. It's just a part of your makeup. You know, this is why we usually just say that Mashiach is a manifestation of Hashem and Mashiach is unified with Hashem. Mashiach is the image of Hashem, the image of the invisible. He's the right arm of Hashem. He's the he's he's like a mini form. He's like the Ant-Man size of Hashem, you know, and it's just kind of like, mm. so anyway, I don't know. Just I do know. I just want to lay that out just to kind of help, you know, because there are so many ideas out there. And when you just look at sources, you keep coming back to the fact that. You have Hashem and his Mashiach. You have Hashem and his servant. Like that is the, that's the line. That is the source. And this is why Mashiach says that I am in you and you're in me and I am in them. So you're in them. And they're in you because they're in me, which is in you. Like if you start really looking at Yochanan 17, you kind of see that idea and crazy as it was myself captain israel and stav soldat were talking today and uh hawkeyein which is our jewish hawkeye uh, we were all talking and we were talking about how when you really look at the loot coat when they're put together they're this cube and then when you look at the uh the sacrificial altar, the Mizbeach in the courtyard, it's a cube. And then when you look at the golden altar in the inside the holy place, it's also a cube. And they're nested. You know, the Mizbeach uh, could house the the Lukot, and then that could have inside of it the golden altar. And then you got the ark, which could go inside of it, or the ark could fit all of that inside of it. Because remember, the ark is like this is supernatural because it took up space, but it didn't. So the interaction of the ark with time and space and all that is just insane. This is how you could have an ark that traveled before the children of Israel three days journey. But yet the ark was carried by the Levites in the center of the camp. And then you just kind of look at all of that. So it's crazy. So that means just like the tablets, which were considered to be the height of a man, a Jewish man, you know, you kind of look at that compared to the altar. And so 
we know that Mashiach himself literally is the sacrificial altar. He's the the Nechoshet, the bronze or copper altar. Either way you want to put it, Nechoshet includes both of those. So, yeah, because we, we got into this conversation based off of talking about Sukkot and how we're like really excited for the opportunity uh, to be at shul with our lulavim and make circuits around the bima because the bima is likened to the sacrificial altar the mizbeach that's in the courtyard and we will be beating our lulavs against it or towards it like like lashes like whipping like beating the altar and then you know in antiquity they would place their lulavim around the base of the uh, Mizbeach. This is all Sukkah 45a, by the way. And it would uh, go up and cover the, the, the Mizbeach. So literally, it looked like a tree of like the lulavs. If the lulavs were brought together and made a tree, the, the vines and the branches were all brought together into a single stalk in the courtyard. And it's just like, what? This is sukkah? This is a sukkot right now? Like, yeah, anyway, don't plant a tree next to the altar because there is a tree in the courtyard right there. Don't need two trees. You only need one. That was the thing in the garden. Don't eat from the tree. So let me finish my point here about the temple and the king because I want to talk about the tree next because um, that's in this week's Torah portion on the Midrash Rabbah, by the way. It says that... Um, now, indeed, Israel appointed themselves a king, Shaul, and they erased the memory of Amalek. So why did they not build for themselves a temple? They could have built a temple when Shaul was king. But why did that not happen? It says because there were tail-bearers among them. That don't sound like anything significant, right? Here's what that means. Eshed HaNechalim, oh, here we go again, explains, tail-bearing causes the Shekinah to depart from the earth. While building the Beit HaMikdash would cause the Shekinah to rest on the earth, tail-bearing and building the temple are thus contradictory activities. The reason they didn't build a temple during Shaul's reign is because they were tearing it down before it even existed. Cur currently, this is why we don't have a temple today, because it's being torn down while it it's supposed to be being built. Well, that's cool, because Mashiach is building it, and so in his merit, Though it is still being torn down, it's still being built up. And Mashiach can do that. No problem. That's why he's re-bandaging, sitting at the gates of Rome. He's building the temple. One wound at a time. With all of the Shan Harah that is existing today, he's just like, okay, got that one. Got it, cool. Another stone put in place. Got that one? Okay, cool. Another stone put in place. Hmm. <sighs> says the temple uh, tail bearing and building the temple are thus contradictory activities God therefore arranged matters is this why this is the case today because Mashiach knew that with the first temple they were tearing it down instead of building it and then when it did get built it was torn down because they forsook Hashem and then when the second temple was built it was destroyed because of tail bearing and baseless hatred Sinat Kinom, Lashon Hara. And so it's just kind of like, all right, so we're going to have this other temple over here. It's going to be built by the Mashiach, who's going to be the one like Moshe, which is, by the way, in this week's Torah portion, Devarim, uh, and then Shoftim, Parsha Shoftim. And it says that when 
if Moshe, show enough Pinkus brings this down this week too. If Moshe were to enter into the promised land and build the Beit HaMikdash, it would never be destroyed. And so that means that when Yisrael would ascend, Hashem would have had to wipe out Israel, And they would have to no longer exist because the temple would be there. This is why we don't exchange the house for the man, like I've talked about with the Madzeva, the Vav for the Vet. Because if you have the Vav and Madzeva, it's Mitzvah. So Hashem didn't want to do that. He didn't want to have a temple, but no people. Even Hashem himself follows his own law. He doesn't erect a Madzeva. The Beit HaMikdash is not a replacement for the man. It is a place for the man. So in other words, it's a place where the Vav can get himself. Like, he can dwell there. Wow. Hashem. Don't replace the house for the man. Don't replace the bet for the Vav. They're to be together. So what does that mean? Two plus six, that's eight, which is the letter Chet, which is the Vav and the Zayin put together, the man and the crown man. So the man who doesn't have a crown with the man who does have a crown. That's Yisrael with the king Mashiach, co-heirs together. The Vav and the Zayin make the letter Chet, which is a hupa. And so when we are united with our king, we're going to be united underneath the hupa. And that would be the Alam Haba. Okay. Co-heirs with Mashiach. Got it. Okay. Because there were tail bearers. Okay. So God therefore arranged matters in such a way that the temple would not be rebuilt at this time. He did so because there would be no purpose in building a dwelling place for the Shekinah. Because even if it were built, the Shekinah would refuse to rest there, where Lashon Hara prevails. So, there's that. Hashem didn't want to just have an empty building. You know, it's like um, if you had tefillin with no parchments in it, or a mezuzah with no scroll in it. It has no value. You just got empty things. This is why if the Torah is not in you, and you're believing in Mashiach, you know, um, that's a problem. You don't want to be an empty vessel like that. I mean, you want to be an empty vessel, but not empty of <laughs> the spirit of Hashem. You know, you want to be filled with him. You know, this is why be filled with the spirit. Be fruitful, you know, uh, as far as abiding me and I will abide in you. You will be connected to the vine and you will bear fruit. There's that. All right. Let's go to the tree. All right, this is uh, Midrash Shabbat Devarim 5:11. Rabbi Yehoshua of Siknin said, in the name of Rav Levi, the first serpent could speak as a human being does. The first serpent could speak as human beings do. Since Adam and Hava were not seeking to eat from the tree that was forbidden, the tree of knowledge. The serpent began to speak Lashon Hara about his creator. So, crazy little loop-de-doo here. But Adam and Hava were focused on building the temple. If you really look at what this means. Because the Lashon Hara of the serpent. The Lashon Hara came up to thwart what Adam and Hava were trying to do. And what did we just read? The temple wasn't built because it was thwarted. 
by Lashon Hara. So what are you saying, Amen? Are you saying if we're refraining from Lashon Hara, we're focused on building the temple? Why, yes, I am saying that. Because if we're living stones built up into a spiritual Beit HaMikdash, that means that we're refraining from Lashon Hara. Being meticulous in Lashon Hara brings Mashiach. And what is going to happen when Mashiach shows up? The temple is going to be rebuilt. Adam and Hava were planning to do that. Now what that looked like, I don't know because they were in Hashem already. They were literally in like the temple. But anyway, I guess maintenance and upkeep is a thing. So Adam and Hava were not seeking. They, they were like, yeah, cool. Hashem, we got it. We're not going to do it. So the serpent, though, came and spoke Lashon Hara about its creator. So with this facet of looking at what caused the temptation of eating from the tree and ultimately eating from the tree was because there was this Lashon Hara and it was towards Hashem, not even the people. So Adam and Hava didn't have any Lashon Hara between them. It was Lashon Hara speaking about Hashem, which they were completely unified with Hashem. So technically it was Lashon Hara spoken against them. So here's what it says. Look at what Lashon Hara does. It, it divides, it separates, it makes things um, disassembled and disrelationed. Okay, the relationship is like fractured with Lashon Hara. It says... It said to them, the creator ate from this tree, then created his world. And he commanded you not to eat from it, lest you create another world. And what did Hakadosh Baruch Hu do to the serpent as his punishment? He severed its legs, cut off its power of speech so that it would not speak again. If you look at that, said that uh, Hashem created his world after eating from this tree, false uh how do you eat from that tree if it doesn't exist because remember creation came from the word of hashem so what is that and then he created his world and he doesn't want you to create another world so there's this thing like if adam and hava were completely unified with hashem what was hashem's was also theirs so the lashana ra took what was theirs and made it Hashem's and not theirs. And so it created this false sense of jealousy. Hashem has something that you don't have. But it's like, if you think for just a second, you're unified with Hashem. How does he have something that you don't have? And this is why I think this verse is so important. Uh, in one of the writings that um, Shaul brings down, uh, let's see here. Uh, Romans 8, 30, uh, Romans, I should have, should have known. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Some translations say everything else. Because you realize everything about Hashem is in Mashiach, like his essence, his poetry, his heart. Who he is, is in Mashiach. And so if Hashem gave us Mashiach, how will he not give us anything else? You know, and so if you kind of look at the idea of this Lashon Hara saying, well, Hashem did this and you don't get to, ha ha ha. It's like, hold up now, because we got Mashiach. So I'm pretty sure Hashem is not trying to keep something away from me. If he was, he wouldn't have gave us Mashiach. He wouldn't have gave us the Torah. He wouldn't have said Anoki. 
All right, so there's that. What else did I see in here that I was like, oh my gosh. Um, oh, check this out. A Cohen reads first from the Torah scroll in the synagogue, and after him a Levi, and then after him Yisrael. Mishnah Gittin 5.8. So if you ever look in a Siddur for the Torah portion of the week, and you see the Cohen's portion, the Levi portion, the Yisrael portion, that's where you get this from. Mishnah Gittin 5.8. Okay. Alright, so check this out. Um... Oh, that was Midrash Rabbah on the uh, Cohen Levy portion. Midrash Rabbah Devarim 5.12. Midrash Rabbah 5.13. The Midrash now presents its exposition of the Job verse that offers insight into the commandment that Yisrael make an overture for peace before commencing battle. This is what I was talking about, how they didn't mercilessly go in and wipe out these nations. They preached peace to it. They gave it an opportunity to make Shuva become a Jew and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Another explanation, you would utter a decree and it would be fulfilled for you. Rabbi Yehoshua of Siknin, here he goes again, said in the name of Rav Levi, all that Moshe decreed, Hakadosh Baruchu agreed with him. How so? Hakadosh Baruchu did not tell Moshe to break the tablets after the sin of the golden calf. Moshe went and broke them on his own. And where do we know that Hakadosh Baruchu agreed with him? For it is written, the first tablets which you broke, Shemot 34.1, this implies, may your strength be affirmed and buttressed because you broke them. Also, Hakadosh Baruch Hu said, or also Hakadosh Baruch Hu told Moshe that he should wage war with Sikon and the Amorites. Uh, as it is said, rise up, provoke war with him. Um, from 2 4, Devarim 2 24. Then it says, however, Moshe did not do this, rather, as he himself testified, I sent messengers. <laughs> Hakadosh Baruchu said to Moshe in response to his peace overture, I said to you thus, wage war with Sikon, and you opened with an offering of Shalom. By your life I will ratify your decree. Henceforth every war which Israel will embark, they shall open only with an offering of Shalom. Alright, we're going to go footnote real quick, so let's work our way backwards. Hashem says, I will ratify your decree. Okay, so now Moshe, or Hashem is agreeing with Moshe. Which would be Hashem agreeing with himself. Because remember, the servant of Hashem is like the essence of Hashem. So there's like this whole circular union here. So this says, if he ratifies a decree that is, you would utter a decree and it will be fulfilled God declares that he will establish Moshe's command to offer Shalom as a new law of Torah. Wow. Okay. Working our way back. Okay. You broke them. It says, i.e., God bless Moshe for breaking the tablets. The verse could have written, been written more concisely. Uh, 
she shibarta why does it write shibarta or asher shibarta the midrash therefore interprets the word asher as ye yoshar which is related to the word ashray and that's from the maharzu which means affirmed and buttressed okay so if we look at that again let's see here you broke them so this implies your strength be affirmed for it is written the first tablets which you broke and it says asher shibarta and so it says instead of reading asher you can read the word as ashray and blessed are that you created so in other words you were affirmed for breaking the tablets which you broke so wow blessed are you for breaking the tablets is basically what this ultimately boils down to and again this is why Mashiach's crucifixion sacrifice because it correlates to the breaking of the tablets this is why it was a blessing this is why Mashiach was so zealous to do it this is why he was for the joy set before him okay listen this is why Romans 12 exists okay and I'm going to have to index it here so I'll finish with Roman Hebrew I mean this is why Hebrews 12 exists I'm going to have to finish here Hebrews 12 okay um 12 2 says fixing our eyes on Yeshua the pioneer and perfecter of our Imuna for the joy set before him endured the crucifixion stake scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God he didn't have any shame in his game basically is what that's saying because it's a shameful thing that the tablets were shattered it was a shameful thing that Mashiach would be stripped and beaten and then crucified people spitting on him insulting him disgracing him they should be bowing before him but yet they're exalting themselves before him and he who exalts himself shall be humbled and this is why through Mashiach all mankind ultimately will be humbled every knee shall bow every tongue shall confess and then um, in view of the joy and the word for joy is charat or charis slika this is not hebrew this is greek charis are we going to load up here it says that this is joy and delight got some hebrew simka and sason there you go joyful cheerfulness and then it has a root word which is uh Samach and Gil, which means to be glad. Uh, Gil. Let's look up that word real quick. I really wanted to share with you more. Um, Bezrat Hashem, I will get to do this again. But if not, um, speaking in tongues is what I wanted to go into. Uh, speaking in tongues is speaking in different languages. The word is Lashon. It corresponds to the tongues of fire that were in Acts chapter 2, which are the same words for the fires that were on the mountain of Hashem in Shemot 19 and Shemot 20 when Hashem was speaking. Hashem spoke in 70 languages, 
which is everyone hearing the Torah in their own language, just like in Acts chapter 2. And Shaul, in his writings to the Corinthians, is saying if you're going to speak in tongues, there should be an interpreter because everybody needs to know what's going on. And um, basically, if you have that interpreter, you're putting yourself back into a Mount Sinai scenario to where the Torah is going out in these languages because by the spirit of Hashem, you're speaking forth. And so you should be speaking Torah. And therefore, if this Torah is going out in a different language, if you have an interpreter, you can hear that Torah that's going out in your own language. So then there's this whole idea in the Siddur that says, unless you pray in Hebrew, you haven't fulfilled uh, the mitzvah of prayer. But if you're praying in your own language, you're fulfilling the mitzvah. And if you're praying in Hebrew, you're fulfilling the mitzvah. So if you look at all that, this is in the overview of the art scroll, complete Siddur. And um, that is basically uh, talking about the prayer languages. And so, you know, Hebrew, by the way, your soul knows that language. So when your soul is praying, it's Hebrew. And then the Hebrew is like edifying your body. So this is why Shaul was saying you're praying at home in your own language, you know, um, that is a language that you don't understand, but that you're praying with your mind and your heart, you know, which is your soul. And so you're praying with your soul and with your mind, and it's in Hebrew, and then you're comprehending and all that. So you roll that all together. That's what speaking in tongues is. So I was questioned about that and what that looked like in personal account. I was praying with a group of people when I used to be a Christian, and they started speaking in tongues. And out of all the things that I've heard, uh, in that particular instance, I did hear the word Mashiach. Like, I remember hearing that. And so it was just kind of like, wow, they were speaking Hebrew. Like, that's crazy. And uh, so if you're hearing tongues and it sounds like gibberish, uh, you might want to get it. Make sure there's an interpreter. If there's not, uh, hopefully uh, it is something that's uh, edifying. If it's not, if your spirit kind of feels nails on a chalkboard, there's a reason for that. Remove yourself from the situation. Um, but notice or know that some languages do sound crazy. Like, have you heard Arabic? Like, are y'all really having a conversation right now? And it's like, yes, we are. And I'm pretty sure people feel like that when they hear Hebrew. But at the same time, Hebrew is the language we're all created from. So really, we probably don't feel like that. But when people are speaking in Spanish or when people are speaking in Chinese or Italian or French, you know, you're just kind of like, wow, you know. Are y'all having a conversation right now? This sounds interesting, you know, kind of thing. And so all the languages, I mean, there's there's, there's at least 70, you know, uh, as far as the archetypal union of the nations. And so the tongues is uh, the spirit interceding in those different languages to transmit the word of God. So there you go. I wanted to make sure I shared that. And man is a tree of the field. Uh, is all about the Zadik, who is the the trunk, and the followers of that Zadik are the branches, and then uh, the fruit that we're supposed to bear is supposed to be like date palms. We're supposed to sacrifice ourselves so that we can be fruitful. It's not all about being like this amazing, extravagant, beautiful person, because that would be what's called a cedar. And you don't want to be a cedar tree. You want to be more like a date palm. But if you're a cedar tree, that's cool because we do need shade. So there's that. And then um, what was the other thing? The Sanhedrin, 
could be literally um, resembling Hashem giving Torah when they make their decrees. The people on the Sanhedrin, they judge and decree with a knife that hangs over their head or sword that hangs over their head and the pit of Gehenna open underneath them. So that's the level of um, position that they judge from. And then they're supposed to be people who are so selfless that they're connected to Hashem because they're so empty of who they are. They're so full of Him that when they decree, it could be as if Hashem, or it could be as if they are giving a Torah, you know, like a literal mitzvah. So this is why we follow oral Torah. This is why halakhically binding things exist in Judaism, because Hashem invested that power into the Sanhedrin. And go back to the whole Smika and all that. Uh, look at all, all of that. The one who comes after Moshe in this week's Torah portion, that's Yeshua, literally um, Joshua, and uh, definitely the Turha Rok and the Hizkuni point that out. One of them, I can't remember which one, but there were two sources that pointed out Joshua literally was what that meant. And the people will listen to him. And they quoted Devarim later how the people listened to Joshua. And we again, Joshua is Yeshua in Hebrew, and Yeshua ben Yosef is ultimately who Joshua is because Noon is the grand grand grandson of. All right, so this word Gil, uh, talking about the joy that Mashiach had before and during the crucifixion stake, is to rejoice exceedingly, a revolution. A time, an age, uh, go round about excited and levity, um, spin around, influence of any violent emotion. I definitely understand that. Let the earth rejoice and let them say, as in First uh, Chronicles 16, 31 and Tehillim 2, and with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Uh, Tehillim 9, 14, Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. Okay, so that's Gil. Trembling, excitement. All right, so um, I would be remiss if I didn't end with this. Bo Mashiach Yeshua. Midrash Rabbah 5.8 says, I too will perform righteousness and will rest my holiness among you. From where in scripture do we know this? For it is stated there at the end of Yeshayahu 5.16, and the holy God will be sanctified through righteousness. God then promises, and if you safeguard both of them, righteousness and judgment, which is uh, righteousness, righteousness. Come on now. Precious gift, children exalted to their allegiance. Well, they talked about righteousness earlier, but um, the footnote, both of them, righteousness and judgment. The Holy One will be sanctified through righteousness as follows. God will be sanctified through the acts of righteousness that Israel performs. Judgment. That is when Yisrael not only safeguards justice, but also carries out acts of righteousness. Judgment is carrying out acts of righteousness. Then acts of righteousness is what sanctifies God when Israel performs it. Okay, so Torah and Mitzvot. Then it says, I will immediately redeem you with a complete and final redemption. Israel was exiled for ceasing to perform justice and righteousness, as it is stated. They do not render justice to the orphan. The grievance of the widow does not come to them. Yeshayahu 1.23 When they assume both of these practices, they will be immediately redeemed, as attested by the verse cited next, which is Eitz Yosef. Alternatively, because acts of righteousness transcend 
acts of acts that are required by the law, which are acts of justice. When Yisrael performs acts of righteousness, God becomes obligated, as it were, to reciprocate with a transcendent act of his own, of his own. This perforce is the final redemption, which transcends the natural order to Farid Zion. So if we're going beyond the letter of the law, that would be considered an act of righteousness. And we transcend what the law requires. It says, from where in scripture do we know this? For it is stated, thus says Hashem, safeguard justice, perform righteousness, for my salvation is soon to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Yeshayahu 56.1 May it be speedily and soon in our days that we merit to see the return of Mashiach Yeshua. May we perform acts of righteousness and justice in the merit of Mashiach Yeshua. Amen. What do we know? What do we know? Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Ha